I started realizing this is really not normal. I mean, I always knew something was wrong. I had a a gut feeling about my father. I knew that he was evil. I knew he was bad. And I knew that he made me cringe. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. And I'm Matthew Phil. And here we are, season three. We actually um, recorded this like six months ago. This is such an exciting, all-purpose, general interest, Christian con artist dad. That's what we've been calling this. Our guest today is Jenna Perry. That may or may not be her married name. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, she didn't even know her own name until she was in the double digits of her own age, right? That's one of the many things we learn in this super high stakes, on the run, adventure, true crime, dad story. Yeah, and what I think is interesting about this was you and I both grew up in, I think, pretty common Christian, conservative, suburban, middle-class families in the United States at various points. When did you come to the States, Matt? Because you're clearly from Sydney, Australia. It's true. I lived in California from 88 to 90. And so I guess what I think is the common factor here is that, and I learned this about you from reading your memoir, Don't Let Me Down. Right. We lived in households where our father figures were really the source of a kind of conservative patriarchal hierarchy. And the way that that protects the man above everyone else. Neither of our fathers were con artists like Jenna's, but listening to her tell her story, there are lots of very kind of familiar moments, um, particularly where you're dealing with going into the church as a family. Of course, Jenna had a hard time going to the same church because their family was always on the run. And I think that... The crux of what's so cathartic about this episode is Jenna knew from an early age that she she just knew something was off with her dad. Right. Like as a toddler, she's like, nah, something wrong here. And he kind of sensed that. And then finally, at a, at a certain climax moment, she really just confronts him and is like, no, we're not, I'm not doing this with you anymore. And yeah. I'm not having it. And I think for anybody who's grown up in a situation where there's like, a really strict father figure who's backed up by religion and who everyone else kind of has to fall underneath, you know, respect must be afforded at, at any cost. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cathartic to listen to her describe, summing up that courage and then letting that out. Jenna's dad was violent, so we should warn people that that confrontation is... It, there's violence in this yeah. episode. It's uh, it's fascinating it's because she fights back. It's poetic. It's metaphorical. It's Shakespearean. It's you know biblical. what? It's the kind of violence where if you actually wrote it in fiction, the editor would be like, mm. yeah, no, on the nose, do it again. Dad, there's a heart-shaped box involved. Yep. 
because I remember growing up in the 80s and the 90s, it was all about those TV evangelists. Oh my God, yes. Robert those... Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral. Yeah. Oh, the Crystal Cathedral. Yeah. Uh, Tammy Faye, the Bakers. Yeah. Um, it's all well. But there was this other scam going on. It's basically a Ponzi scheme at the same time that was sweeping the nation. And I did a little research and I found this Washington Post article from 1989. Religious groups prove gold mines to con artists. Investors in at least 15 states have lost more than $450 million in the past five years, according to the attorney general. The scams include self-proclaimed preachers and Christian financial planners touting lucrative returns on divinely inspired investments in coins, precious metals, and oil and gas partnerships. So these con men would come into a church community and say, I am going to invest your hard-earned dollars pretending to be a Christian himself, although we'll find out he really did seem to at least... Seem to identify that way, yeah. He was a, a Moody Bible Institute dropout. Anyway, we're very lucky to be with Jenna. We're lucky that she made it through to tell her story. It's a really compelling story, and I think it has a surprising ending. Yeah. Buckle up. So take us through it. You've lived in seven states and mm -hmm. something like 60 cities. Were mm -hmm. you constantly moving? And can you share how and where? What was the longest you've ever stayed in one place? <laughs> it was very brief. <laughs> Looking back, so my parents were married young. They met at Moody Bible Institute, right. where all great marriages come from. <laughs> And they married young. They were about 19 or 20 when they married and about 20, you know, 21 to 23 when they had me and my sister were only two years apart. And the first year of marriage, my father worked for a tool company. He was a salesman on the road. And my mom knew in the first year of marriage, there were some things that weren't adding up. He did have some erratic behaviors, mm -hmm. but bills weren't being paid, things like that. But there was always an excuse for him. Oh, it's just a bill that didn't get paid or, oh, we're waiting on that check. That thing will be paid shortly. But then when he was a salesman, and which lasted about two years in the early 80s, his supervisor had come to the house and was pretty aggressive, started yelling at my mom, yelling at, yelling at my dad. This was before we were, I was born. And he accused him of starting contracts to get commission-based, mm -hmm. you know, to get commissions that he did not put work for. So he was creating contracts for um, tool accounts, you know, wherever he was going to businesses who were selling tools would take the commission, but never actually sold the product on the shelf. So that was kind of his first start where my mom knew something was wrong. So within the first year of marriage, he started having erratic behaviors, aggressive behaviors, and then bills not being paid. So she knew there was something wrong, but she couldn't quite put her finger on it. You know, at that time, she didn't know he was narcissistic, sociopathic. But she said within the first year and a half, their marriage was over. And so my sister was born two years after they were married. But within the first year and a half, it was done. As in they actually divorced? Well, no, they just didn't have a, a marriage. Yeah. It took them 20 years to divorce. They did not have a romantic relationship anymore. And obviously something was very wrong with him. And she tried to leave within that first year and a half. She was pregnant with my sister. And when she tried to leave, 
he would, he ran out to the, you know, wherever their car was parked and started ripping car parts out of, from underneath the hood and said, you're never leaving. Right. The control, the mm-hmm. threats. Mm-hmm. So it's safe to say she was afraid of him and you were afraid of him? Yeah. Yep. She was afraid of him. She was pregnant with her first child. Yeah. And so she couldn't leave. And then two years later, I was born. There continued to be erratic behaviors and some inconsistencies, but he got into a brokerage firm and became quite a successful broker, started pulling in quite a bit of money. My mom always dressed very nice, had nice watches, and, you know, he always wanted to be something he wasn't. He had a grandeur idea of himself. He wanted to be big. He wanted to be successful. He wanted to appear very wealthy and to be that big guy, big guy at work. Outside of Moody Bible, did he have an education? No, he was a Moody Bible dropout. He actually bombed Bible college and dropped out after, I I think, one year. And he had no other formal education. Where was he born? He was born in, oh, goodness, somewhere outside of Peoria, Illinois. Illinois. That's where I was born as well. Okay. Yep, central Illinois. So after he became more successful at being a broker, taking people's money, right, and investing it mm-hmm. for them, um, yep. it sounds like he was dodging collectors or people who were like, where are my investments? He was even in the newspaper. I remember seeing this newspaper article at my grandparents' house in the, the, the journal star of our city, and it was saying this young hotshot's on the rise and he's doing really well. So he really liked that. But soon, probably like within a year or two of him being this new hotshot broker in town, the firm that he worked for dissolved and his partner was being interrogated by the CIA and the FBI. Wow. Yeah. And to this day, we really don't know what went on. Well, of course, there was fraudulent activity and that's why the the firm dissolved. But they kind of think that possibly there could have been some, you know, money laundering drug involvement, perhaps. So he he feared retaliation because from the firm, obviously, his partner went to prison, was being interrogated by the CIA, was being interrogated by the FBI. So this is when my father began to unravel. And this is where we began to see more erratic behaviors and a nomadic lifestyle. In order to keep us safe from this is where we started learning, too, about the bad guys. Bad guys were chasing us. His partner was in prison. The CIA was interrogating his partner and the FBI. My father really feared that the CIA and the FBI were coming after him next. And according to my father, they did. He used to disappear from time to time, and he would come back beaten up and bloodied. He even had bruises on his earlobes because he said the bad guys were out to get him. One night, my mom received a phone call because he had been arrested, went to jail, and was being interrogated by the police. And she got a call, and all it said was, come and get him. And they, she found him on a corner, beat up and bloody. So he was beat up by the police? We don't know. So this is when his paranoia and his mental health began to unravel. So yes, he was a criminal. He was a con man. We believe that he was taking money from investments and running with that money. Because as someone who was already dishonest and was showing erratic, abusive behavior, to be a stockbroker, one, he liked the image. Yeah. But also, this is when his criminal activity really started to take off. He then took us on the run because the bad guys were going to kill us. I was told as a child that bad people were after us and we need to hide. So that's when we spent about six years running in and out of states, 
and we lived in about 60 different residencies that I can recall. That does not count hotels, motels, vans, or friends' houses that we were squatting at or couch surfing at. Did you ever live in a house? Not not for quite some time. When I was born to about the early 90s, we did not reside in anything that was ours. It was rentals, in and out of rentals. You know, the longest place we might have stayed would have been a few weeks because mm-hmm. usually rent wasn't being paid either. Okay. And homeschooling, I'm assuming, that Christian <laughs> convenience. Right. It is a Christian convenience, but as somebody who's trying to keep out of the public right. eye and is keeping up a story of if they find out who we are, where we are, the bad guys will come and find us and will come kill our family. Wow. So I was told that we were always in hiding. When somebody would knock on our door, whether it was a hotel, motel, whatever apartment we were renting at the time, in and out of six states, wherever we were, we were told that is the bad guy. And I would go hide in the shower Ugh. to make sure that my dad would check who was at the door or when we were riding in a car to go home, wherever home was at that time we were told to lay down in the back seat of the car. Was that just become routine for you or is it like? Yeah. I mean, I, I really thought this was kind of normal. Right. I mean, I didn't know. I was, you know, very young. This was going on from, again, from birth till about 1991. And in that time, we were in Wisconsin, Texas, Illinois, Georgia, Whoa. Florida. Um, we were all over the place. And as we were on the run and we couldn't tell people where we were, we were very isolated Mm -hmm. and we weren't allowed to have connections with family. So I didn't see my grandparents for about 10 years because we were on the run. And if they knew where we were at, then we had the potential being killed by the bad guys who were after my father. Was that his parents or your mom's parents? It was my mom's parents. So what's up with his parents? Yeah, where Where did they come from? Well, I, I always referred to my grandfather as an enabler. So as my father was in an, he probably went to jail between that period of 1984, 1991. He probably went to jail about six or seven times. Yeah. And each time he went, the bond was about $10,000 to $25,000. And this is in the 80s, so. And again, we never really knew why he was going to jail. At one point, my mom woke up when we were in a hotel in Texas. She woke up and she heard some noise and she looked over and he was being arrested in his bed. And there was another time where we were living in, I believe, Tennessee, and he was extradited to Wisconsin. And so he ended up in the Wisconsin state prison system. So your mom isn't leaving him because she's afraid of what he'll do? So my mom was afraid because he did say, if you leave me, they're going to come find you and kill you. He thought that the best way to protect us was to stay together as a family unit, one big happy family. So she did stay with him. And I also think that she was very afraid of him. He was emotionally abusive, physically abusive. And at one point, I was probably five or six, but he held my mom outside. Of, we were on the highway in our car, and he held her out the door just to let her know that he had control. And he also carried in his glove compartment a gun, and he also carried a knife, which he called the kidney pricker, because he used to let us know he killed people. Wow. You can't be part of a regular church, right? Because you can't just keep going back to the same church. So who is bringing Christianity into your house? Is it both your parents? Both my parents were raised Christian. They, you know, they attended Christian Bible college. And so, yeah, so even though we were a family on the run, whatever city, whatever state 
wherever our dwelling was, we were at a church because after the brokerage dissolved, my father needed to continue his scam. How he scammed church people? Well, one, he did claim to be a devout Christian. He played the part quite well. He was charming as hell at church. Did he have a testimony? Oh, yeah, that's what you need. Uh, you know, the church loves a good redemption story, especially yep. from a man. Mm -hmm. And that he kind of played that card, but much later in life. But when he was actively scamming people from church, he would let them know that he was an investment guy who better to trust and a Christian. And Christians, they kind of cast their allegiance so blindly. Because if, if yeah. you're a Christian, that means you're a good person. Um, and so he would work people in the congregation, offer to invest on their behalf. And, you know, and they were promised big returns, big checks. And of course, he would take that money and then we would move along. Okay, that was the scam. Okay. And another one he would do is he would let people know, hey, this is my family. You know, my, my brokerage dissolved. I have money, but it's actually overseas in an account and I don't have access to it. Which to me, maybe it's because I grew up in a con family and setting. That seems like con 101 right. to me. But my father was quite compelling and very charming and had a very good story to go with it. People would kind of feel pity for us. They felt that he actually was telling the truth, that he was on the run and he had all this money and all this wealth, but it was an offshore accounts and, you know, he would pay them back later. So we had many families from church that would lend us, you know, rooms in their home, pay for things, offer my dad checks, or he would play the card that he was investing for them. And then once he said he was investing for them, he would run. He would disappear from time to time. I remember one time my mom kind of became a bit savvy and started to do some investigative work herself. And he said he was flying to Europe to go get our money, go check things out, mm -hmm. you know, because that's really where we were going to be residing. We, we just needed to get to our home in Europe where all our money was. Well, she checked out something, either a flight path or something, and she realized our credit card bill. He had been staying in Wisconsin. And I think at the time we were living in Illinois. And she's like, well, you weren't in Europe. You were in Wisconsin. He goes, you should know I can't fly out of U.S. airlines. I can't be seen. I flew out of Canada. So he said that he went from Wisconsin to fly out of Canada. So he always okay. lied his way out of a corner. Right. He was very good at it. Ugh. Did you have identification? Did you ever have to use an alias or? Yep. Yep. I had an alias. I didn't know my real last name probably till I was like eight. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I still have books. You know, when you're a little girl, you practice writing your name on everything. And so I have my alias name on, you know, multiple books. And I found a, a book the other day. It was like a My Little Pony book and it had my fake name in it. You know, and little kid writing with crayon. Did you get to choose I it? Had a, your own fake name? No, I, did, I didn't know it wasn't our name. <laughs> you didn't even know. <laughs> It was no, just I your didn't. last name, not your first name. It was just, yeah. Right. Um, one time we ended up in the paper for something and they, my dad had them spell my name wrong just to be safe. Wow. My first name. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a few times where he would scramble the name, but this one name, we went by that maybe for a, a small handful of years. Yeah. And, you know, at least at the age where I was practicing writing. So I imagine five or six, but I didn't know that wasn't my name until probably... I don't know, the early 90s, 1991, 1992. And one day we just started going by another name. What's that like to learn that you've been using a, yeah. a fake name? I was so isolated from other people. I didn't really know that it wasn't normal. Yeah. To me, this was, you know, somebody knocks at the door, you hide in the shower. 
laying low in the backseat. Maybe this is normal. I mean, I'm pretty young. I was yeah. only six or seven at the time. This is that makes sense. It just and I, again, I didn't really have a, at this time in my life. Again, that 1984 to 1991, where we're heavily on the run. I didn't really have any friends. I had my sister. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to other people's homes really. So I didn't have really anything to compare to other than like watching Full House and really wishing I was a tanner. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's like yeah. millions of Americans, no matter. We all want to be tanners, <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> so how, at his best, how rich were you guys? How luxe was your life? I mean, it, it's hard to say because on the exterior, we looked luxe. You know, I had the polo. I remember wearing the little polo shirts mm-hmm. and my mom had a Rolex. My mom. Is beautiful, and she had all these fancy handbags. But we were sleeping in hotels. There were sometimes we did have nice rentals, but they wouldn't be very long lived. My father was a great golfer, but of course he didn't want to be just a golfer. He used to let people know he was in the PGA Tour or you know getting into the PGA Tour. So we actually spent a great deal of time hanging out at PGA Tours, going to all these fancy golf parties, and. Um, when we were in Georgia, the reason I believe we moved there is because he wanted to go scam his favorite golfer, who is a very famous PGA Tour star. Wow. We pretended to have lots of money. We had um, a real estate agent looking for a mansion for us. We were living in a hotel, but we met up with a real estate agent and we were shopping for mansions. <laughs> and we just happened to shop for the mansion that was next door to my father's favorite PGA Tour star. And not only did we look at that house, of course, we're, we have Monopoly money. We don't have real money, not that I'm aware of, but we were looking at it. And I remember driving around with this realtor, looking at mansions. My dad's like, that room's going to be yours. Isn't this so exciting? And I was excited just to have a room. I didn't care if it was a mansion. I just wanted a room I could paint my own color yeah. and put my My Little Pony posters up. But we ended up hanging out with this guy quite a bit. We were over at his house. We had dinners. And my dad ended up taking quite a bit of money from him. From the PGA star. From the PGA Tour star, which I won't name him, but. That's actually not easy to do. <laughs> no. Like, I think this is kind of impressive. It Take impressive. away the absolute moral, unambiguously wrong right. behavior. Mm-hmm. To be able to make that happen mm-hmm. is so crazy to me. Like that, not everyone. Right, it's a catch that. me if you can kind of. And I always compare my life when people, you know, want the Cliff Notes version. I'm like, oh, you know, uh, I have to write down years and locations and everything else. Like if I wanted to tell my story, like I, I kind of have to really think about it. But I said, just go watch Catch Me If You Can. And then we'll, I'll kind of compare it the best I can to my own life. But my father, we spent a great deal of time with ritzy golfers. And he was a great golfer. That's the thing. Yeah, He had some of these skills, but he was so damn likable. People loved him. People were compelled to him. He was magnetic. You know, he's a Sagittarius. He just had this charm. Same. He was wild. He was nomadic in his soul, not just physically. Had he had the charm and could have used it for good, I think about what he could have done. Yeah. If he would have used his skill set for good. Right. Maybe you could have been a great golfer instead of stealing thousands of dollars from your favorite PGA Tour star. We mainly spent most of this time, the six-year time frame, in and out of hotels, motels. And family, you know, friends we've made at church, yeah, you know, or they were to be scammed and we haven't scammed them yet. So we were sleeping on their couch. It's a great way to hide because the church is all about anonymity in some ways. You know, it's where they Mm -hmm. have the AA meetings in the basement. Mm -hmm. There's this feeling of goodwill. 
I remember the concept of your church has a caretaker's house. You know, Mm -hmm. it would often be like a poor family who, in exchange for keeping the church up, like as a carpenter or something, cleaning, Mm -hmm. then you can live rent-free in this house. So I assume it was like a little bit of that and a little bit of this. Absolutely. But do you think he was involved with the mob or like, or maybe the beatings were just coming from like disgruntled people that he'd ripped off? You know, that's a great question. And kind of as I've, I've done some of my, uh, my own research on him, because he's all kind of this mystery to us, as you know, we don't know. After the brokerage dissolved, you know, and, and his partner went to, to prison and all this talk about the CIA, you know, and interrogating him. Eventually, my father shifted his narrative that he complied with the CIA. Mm. So later, he started saying, you know what, I've actually complied with them, and I am now a CIA agent working with them. If you're going to be big, be big. Yeah. You know, Fair enough. Don't pussyfoot around. So then he changed his story that he was a CIA agent, and he had all these funds in Europe, again, offshore accounts, Swiss bank accounts, and that we actually resided in Monte Carlo, and we were a family that was just trying to get home. We were living in these hotels, and he had millions of dollars, but he couldn't access his money. But when he did, he would pay these people all back. So I remember being probably like five years old, making friends at church. Maybe we stayed somewhere long enough to where I could actually call someone a friend. Because like you said, I was homeschooled. One, it's kind of part of Christian culture to be homeschooled. And for a family on the run, I wasn't allowed to be in a public school system. Because we didn't stay anywhere long enough to be in a district. Right. And then I was always told, if we are in a public school system, we will be found. Yeah, that's your fingerprints. It's your immunization records. Yep. It's everything. Yep. Okay, I have two questions. Who is educating you? Is it like your family? And also, what role are you playing in these scams, if any? And I'm certain, obviously, that it'd be unwitting or you'd just be routine. Are you involved in these scams? And who was teaching you at home? My mother was my teacher. So she taught us, I mean, and and she did the best she could. You know, she would rent school books from the school district we were in for that time frame. Or, you know, every Christian homeschool family used Becca books because it teaches creationism and things that are friendly to Christian culture. Right. She used, you know, certain curriculums and did the best she could. And as for the question about the, the scams, um, I remember early on, kind of picking up that this was not right. Mm. I was probably about seven. I was making friends and I kind of realized when my father would come around, like, oh, I've got this new friend, but I would see him talking to their parents and I would, my stomach would drop mm. because I knew I just lost them. Right. You knew how it was going to play out. And I remember probably being a little older, maybe like seven or eight, like, hey, you know what? I just made this new friend at church. I really like them. Can you not talk about Europe and Monaco. Yeah. Because I knew that correlation that if he started talking, we were going to either be on the run or he was going to do something bad. So is he, your mom's afraid of him because of the fear of retaliation and also Mm -hmm. the abuse that he's enacting on her. How are you feeling about this? How does he act towards you? Because you're defiant, right? Mm -hmm. You're defiant this whole time or how did that play out? 
you know, I, I did retaliate, you know, I didn't like being around him, but of course, as a narcissist would, he accused my mom that I must not be his. Oh, wow. Yeah. He's like, she doesn't love me. She doesn't have anything to do with me. She doesn't like me. And again, that's, that's not normal for most kids. You know, they like their parents. They like their dad to a reasonable extent. So he used to tell people, my mom, she's not mine. Wow. That's why I didn't like him. Not because of his abuse or his behaviors, because he could never own up to those things. Narcissists don't do that. Um, well, thank God you had your sister, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what were you guys talking about as you were coming of age in this insane environment? Those first six, seven years where we're completely nomadic and on the run, I mean, it's I, I really didn't know that this wasn't normal. So we talked about things like like little girls do. We talked about My Little Pony. Yep. And maybe one day we're like, wait, well, we can't wait until we have our own house. That was probably something we talked about a lot. Being homeless, you <laughs> make sense. Yeah. You know, we would talk. We had toys. And I remember there were some nights we would be playing with our toys in a storage unit because we didn't have toys in the hotel room. I mean, we had some. We packed light. But we did have a storage unit from time to time. And I would go to that storage unit, pull out a certain box. And I, <laughs> I even wrote down on all the boxes, I would label them like one through 10. And I would make a list of inventory of what was in it. So I knew real quickly, okay, box 10 has Teddy Ruxpin in it. Box eight has my ponies. So I would sit at the storage unit and play with my toys. But, you know, to me, that didn't feel that obscure until I was a little bit older and I kind of could compare friends and how I lived. At the time, I didn't know. Right. Did you have access to TV and pop culture? Oh, yeah. I was a big Prince fan when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we did. I mean, we lived in hotels, so we had cable television and all the, the amenities that a hotel has to offer. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, was, I had access to pop culture, um, television. I was done with school by 1030, so I would watch The Price is Right. <laughs> did they let you watch cable, though? I remember secular TV was a big one. Mm. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, things were screened. Music was screened. Television was screened. But there were some things we were allowed to watch. And my mom is, uh, I don't think she was as conservative as my father wanted her to be. So we watched Prince videos together. <laughs> is there anyone outside of your family unit who can see or notices something at any point that looks in and goes, hi, uh, something's wrong yeah, here? Yeah. So my grandparents, my father's parents, were at this time, they would be paying his bail. So I like to refer to them as enabler one and two. They were very enabling to my father's behavior. I think 80% of the bails that were paid were paid by his parents. Wow. And they're part of that culture, that generation of, you know, we don't talk about this guy. We're going to sweep everything under the rug and there's nothing to see here. We're going to keep moving forward. They didn't want to shame the family. So they continuously bailed him out of prison and eventually bankrupt themselves by bailing him out. They never turned him in. Really? And eventually, I mean, he even stole money from his own parents. My my grandparents, well, my grandfather's passed away now, but my grandma's in her 90s, but they're broke. They had a decent amount of money, successful businesses, but they shelled out every dime they could not to get their son help, but to cover it up, to make sure. What do they say now? What does your grandma say? Um, my grandma's, I mean, my grandma, I believe she was kind of a, a victim of some of it. I think my grandfather, his father, really kind of covered a lot of things up, didn't want the shame, wanted to sweep it under the rug, didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to correct it. Mm -hmm. 
I hold a lot of resentment towards him yeah. because I feel like here we were, my mother was afraid. And not only did he enable his son by bailing him out of jail, but he never did anything to correct it or help. Which is abusive when there are children and... Which is abusive. And he was just, I, you know, and my grandfather, everybody loved my grandfather. He was a good Christian man. That's how he was always described. But he never wanted to make things right or to help us. He only wanted his son to be just out of prison so he didn't have to talk about it or think about it. Was your dad an only child? Sounds like it. No, he had, it does, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? He's the baby. So I think there's like a 10 or 12 year age gap between him and his siblings. Interesting. I never knew his siblings. His siblings caught on to his schemes and we were told that they were bad people and we did not see them. Anytime anybody figured my dad out, confronted him, we would isolate from them. So my mother's parents, they started to figure some things out, especially since we disappeared for six years. You know, they weren't seeing us and they knew something was wrong. There was no CIA coming after. Like, there's no way there's CIA coming after. This has to be a mental health issue. Yeah. So when my father was extradited to Wisconsin and ended up in Wisconsin State Prison, he called my grandmother, my mom's mom, and said, you have to pay my bail. If you don't get me out of prison, they're going to kill me and they're going to come kill your grandchildren and your daughter. And so she paid it. Reluctantly, right. she paid $25,000 to get him out of prison. That's so much money, too. So much money. And about 10 days later, she was sick of not seeing us, not getting the truth. So she rescinded her bond so they would come rearrest him and take him back to Wisconsin. I didn't even know you could do that. You can. Yeah. <laughs> I guess in the 80s, you could. And so what happened is he was pissed. He was angry because she was on to him. She knew that he was a con man. She knew that there was something wrong. Whether whoever he was hiding from, the bad guys, she didn't care. She was sick of her daughter being abused. She was sick of this whole situation. So he called the phone company of my grandparents, my mom's parents, pretended to be my grandfather, had their phone disconnected. And then he sent them a threatening letter, which she, my grandmother held on to till the day she died. I remember seeing it. And it said, this is just a taste of what I'll do to you if you mess with me again. Jesus. Elizabeth, remember when we started making this podcast? Boy, do I. It was two years ago. Can you believe that? Two years. Ugh, I can because we were just so focused on getting it right and learning all these programs, right, oh. to try to make it perfect. Mm -hmm. If only we had heard about Anchor by Spotify. It's so easy. It makes everything better because it's all in one place. Everything you need. Everything you need all in one place. It allows you to record and edit the podcast right from your phone or computer. Your phone? That means you could edit a podcast from anywhere. From, from the beach. From the beach. In a windstorm. In a windstorm. Anywhere. Truly. And some people do. We use our computers. Tell me about the hosting capabilities. Oh my gosh. You could upload that thing to any of the platforms, including Apple. It sounds kind of like this is everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Hell yeah, it is. How much is it? It's absolutely free. What? If only we'd known that part a couple years ago. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor dot fm to get started 
So you just kept moving like that. After we lived in six different states, my home state is Illinois. I was born in Illinois. Both my parents are from Illinois. After being on the run and missing from everybody, we isolated from everybody, we ended up back in Illinois and we moved in with my grandparents, my father's parents. And it was such a breath of fresh air because I got to stay in one house and we stayed there for about three years. And to me, that felt normal, although, you know, we were living with my grandparents, but I was able to at least get there and have some peace, have a spot to sleep in. I slept on the floor. My grandma was obsessed with porcelain dolls and teddy bears. And unfortunately, my room was in the really creepy porcelain doll room. Oh, but at least it was mine. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But, you know, as a kid, you want to, like, paint your room and do your own thing. I never got that chance. But at least I knew there was a spot for me to sleep on every night. Oof. Okay, so three years you lived with you. So what happens to the story? Suddenly the CIA is not after you anymore? The story continues. So when we moved to Illinois with my grandparents, it feels good for me and my sister because we're stationary. For the first time since I was a baby, I, I kind of got a taste of what it was like to have homeostasis, to have the same spot to go to sleep in every night, to have my things, to be able to pull out all those bins from the storage unit and maybe unpack them. But I remember I had this dollhouse that I got when I was three and I never got to put that together. Mm. But I remember thinking one day when we get a home, we'll put that together. And I remember that was the first thing I grabbed from the storage unit. I was like, I'm putting this thing together. I've had it since I was three. So things like that were very exciting to me. What a metaphor, you know? Yeah, I never, <laughs> yeah, never got to build that house in my dreams. Never got to do that, but it felt stable. And we started going to church again. We were still homeschooled, but we still had to keep out of the public eye. I think my dad let us know that, hey, maybe this isn't threat level orange. Maybe we've lower grade now to yellow. You know, we're not as much danger now. Yeah. But we still kept up the story. He still said, I'm an investor. My money's in Europe. And we started attending a church there. We attended it for probably two years. Mm -hmm. And those stories continued, but he wasn't actively scamming people probably because we lived there. So I really don't know what he was doing for money at that time. Right. Yeah. It just sounds like he was able, you were all able to stay there because it was like literally his parents protecting him. Yep. It was my grandparents protecting him. And I remember, so I had no contact with his siblings because his siblings right. knew he was trouble. They didn't want to be around him. And he told us that they were terrible people. That's why we couldn't be around them. They weren't safe. It wasn't that he wasn't safe. Right. Is it that they were dangerous? So one time they came to my grandparents' house to visit and we weren't allowed to see them. And it was Thanksgiving. I was kind of excited. I was like, oh, I'm going to see my aunt. I'm going to see her. And it's going to be so strange because I just don't know my family. Mm -hmm. I didn't see my mom's side of the family. I didn't see my dad's side of the family other than my grandparents. And um, our neighbors across the street, we must have fed them some story, my dad. And he said, you know, hey, can we, they were going to be out of town for Thanksgiving. He goes, can we stay at your house for the weekend? My family's having people over and we just need to get out of the way. <laughs> and also he had my grandparents tell his siblings that we were in Europe. So he moved our car, hid it somewhere around the block. And then we stayed at the neighbor's house directly across the street. And the biggest kick in the pants was I would watch from the neighbor's window and watch my family hang out because we weren't allowed to have anything to do with it. Wow. I was probably eight or nine years old, and I was so excited just to see a glimpse of my aunt, my uncle, and I could watch them from the window. 
Okay. So at what point are you just like, I'm done? It seems like adolescence oh. might have been like what teenage years might have been like a point where you just go, okay, enough. I'm out and you leave. What was that point? Well, I, I wanted nothing to do with my father. I knew, you know, I remember there was this notebook and I remember I looked at it one time and I was like, this is bullshit. And again, my mom was just told to do these things. He had her cornered, but there was this notebook, like a binder. And it, it was a ledger. It was a handwritten ledger of, of all the different investments and money, supposedly that my father was investing. So my mom would watch the New York Stock Exchange and he would tell her what to watch, what to record. And I remember I would go through this notebook and I would just see millions of dollars, color-coded, highlighted, all these things. And it was my mom's financial ledger that she was told to keep for him. And then also there's pictures of him with Ferraris. He supposedly had a very big garage in Europe with all these Ferraris. And he had pictures of him with random Ferraris that he kept in there, maybe to keep up with the story. I'm not sure. And I mean, I was 10 years old and I was sick of this. You know, I was sick of not having friends. People that knew us, that knew of my father, especially in central Illinois where he's from, stories had traveled. People weren't allowed to talk to me. People weren't allowed to be my friend. And especially, you know, with his reputation, I, I had very few friends. And logistically, of course, it was hard to keep them. But what was the last time you saw your father? I haven't seen him since my parents divorced in 2002. And to okay. answer to, to your point, Matt, I wanted to get away from my father since I was of probably course, three yeah. years old. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I wanted nothing to do with it. At the point when I had been stable in Illinois, I was still homeschooled, so I didn't really have a huge outlet of friends. As a Christian, I had Awanas, which is a Christian group on Wednesday nights, and that was my only social outlet. And even though I was a homeschooler, I was a very big social butterfly. Mm -hmm. And I really looked forward to that. But I started going over to some friend's house because they didn't know us quite yet. Maybe I'd made some new friends. They hadn't heard of us. And I made some really good lifelong friends at this church. But my dad started to befriend their parents. Yes. And I cringed at the thought because, and this was like the first time I had a real friend. And I would go over to their house and I started realizing this is really not normal. I mean, I always knew something was wrong. I had a, a gut feeling about my father probably the first time he ever touched me. But at this time, I'm like, I don't want to see you talking to people that I know because I know I'm going to lose them. Mm. So this family friend that we started to make were Christian elitists. They were very wealthy. They had a lot of money. Their grandfather was a CFO of Moody Bible Institute and a multimillionaire. Whoa. And so they became my best friends. And they were part of an elitist um, resort. I like to call it a holy roller camp up in Michigan. And they decided to take us up there one summer. And my dad was much obliged because it was people with money. So when we got to this right. Christian resort on a vacation one summer, when we were living, this was about 1996. We went up there. It was a gorgeous camp on the water. And this is like where Mercedes are there. You know, this isn't like Christian cheap cabins. This is, this is luxury. This is elite. This is where the millionaires hang out of the Christian world. Yeah. So we went up there and my father ended up scamming a lot of money. And the worst part about it was, is that we never went back to Illinois. He kept saying, we're on vacation. We'll go back home soon. And Illinois to me at that point was home. I had had a chance to live with my grandparents for three years. But then he realized he had an opportunity in Michigan, and we never went back home. Wow. But eventually you come of age. You know, you're a teenager. Mm -hmm. Did you ever confront him? 
I did. When we moved to Michigan in 1996, he worked a couple of conventional jobs. Now, mind you, the stories of the CIA, FBI, all those things, that, that narrative never changed. He told it to everybody. And some people would buy it, which is crazy to me because, again, I think this is like con man 101, huge red flag. But obviously, he had enough finesse to make it chewable, digestible, and they would believe it. Um, so in 1998, my father went to prison. He worked a couple conventional jobs, and he went to prison for embezzlement. And it was the happiest day of my life. I was so happy because my mom got a job. My mom got an apartment. And for the first time, I slept differently at night. I struggled with extreme childhood anxiety, um, all sorts of things. So this was the first time in my life where I felt at peace. What did she get a job doing? I think she worked at a nursing home. Somebody at our church, you know, my mom had no work experience. She had never worked. She homeschooled us. She was on the run. And my father was the provider in a patriarchal Christian home. The man provides. Yeah. Even if it's scamming money, that was his job to do that. I went to public school with real kids for the first time, which was kind of a culture shock. I was, I don't know, I was a freshman, 10th grade, and my dad was in prison. And I was kind of thrown, okay, I've never been to a real school. I don't know how to act, but let's just do this. And he got out after nine months, though. Mm. And he did boot camp to get out, actually made it. I was shocked. Well, yeah. He's a survivor, I mean. Yeah, Yeah. and and I don't doubt that he didn't scam his way out of prison. But so when he came back, I was devastated. And my mom at this time, when he's in prison, that gave her nine months to start to create a life away from him, put away some money and try to figure out how to get away from him. And um, so I did confront him. And when he was confronted, he was a different person. He would look like a caged animal, but he could still lie his way out of a corner. And I remember my grandfather saying, you need to be there for your father when he gets out. (laughs) And I said, no, I don't. This is going to be the worst day of my life. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Mm. And I hope he burns in hell. Wow. I was pretty upset. And my grandfather told me, you need to tell your father you love him. You need to show him respect. And this is what I remember about my grandfather is him telling me that I needed to respect him. And the thing that Christian culture doesn't allow for is there's a Bible verse that says, you know, you got to honor your mother and father. Well, I don't have to honor my father if he's not respectable, but we don't really define that. You know, it's interesting listening to you talk about the Christian aspect of it, because it seems like the patriarchal structure that comes from Christianity is a toxic kind of presence in your family. It enables him to be like this this tyrannical person. But the church did kind of help Mm -hmm. you in a lot of ways too, right? I can't believe I'm saying that, like I'm an atheist who's like deeply, you know, anti-religion, but I feel, it feels like you had a lot of pretty good experiences with the church as well. I mean, I did make some good friends, um, but my experiences with the church changed pretty dramatically Mm -hmm. in my late teen years before I got out of high school. When my dad got back from prison, you know, people knew that he had been in prison and nobody wanted anything to do with me. And it was mainly people from church. Mm. We always went to a church. That is something that always stayed consistent within our family. One, my father claimed to be a Christian. My mom's a Christian, and that's what we did. Mm-hmm. But also, as a good good source of resources for my father, whether it was you know investments, scamming, other things, he always played on the you know on the congregation somehow. He knew his audience. Yeah, yeah, he very much knew his audience, and that the Christian church was, for some reason, he could pickpocket them or pull mm-hmm. right from the tithing bowl. I don't know how he did it. 
so successfully. But once he went to church, though, I think that was kind of like, that's I was pretty taboo. Again, we like redemption stories, but I think they had just long known his history. And then he went to prison. That was a pretty big red letter that I had to bear. And when he came back, they put him up for church discipline, public church discipline, which in the Baptist world is practically like a public hanging. You have to go up on stage. You have to apologize and atone for your sins. It's just, I mean, not that I'm saying he didn't deserve some kind of public shaming. I was all for it. I would have been kicking him there too. But after that public discipline at my home church, people did not talk to me. I lost a lot of friends. Like in school and in church? Like was there bullying? Everybody at that point treated me differently. Nobody thought, gee, this is a kid. Right. No, no, you would think. (laughs) This is where my deconstruction and my own unraveling of faith really starts to happen. Right. Because, you know, I think in a marriage and a family, you, I think it really protects the man. You know, we protect the head of the family. Marriage is sacred. And I remember, too, when my mom was looking into divorce, people from the church were pretty vocal. Although this man is narcissistic, sociopathic, and absolutely insane and abusive in every possible way. Divorce is still wrong. Still wrong. Still can't do it. So when I did confront my dad, I wanted him to go away. And we got into a physical altercation mm-hmm. when I confronted him because I was disrespectful. Yep. I was questioning him. I challenged him. I never believed him. I told him, I said, you are a liar and I will never believe you. And when he was caught in a lie, he would change. He would look different. He looked insane. And we got into a little bit of a squabble. And I probably at that point, I was an angry teenager. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, fair. (laughs) And I was an aggressive teenager at times. And I might have thrown a punch, but he pushed me down on the floor. And I remember reaching over at my nightstand. And I grabbed this pewter heart box that I had on my nightstand with, you know, probably earrings and there's And I just started beating him with it. Girl. Well, the poetry of that, too, like just beating him with your cold hot hot (laughs) pretty much because i never loved him and he ruined my life i I probably had been waiting for that opportunity since i was eight how did you feel after you did it i told him i wasn't afraid of him did you feel like like release yeah yeah because i i had wanted to punch him and beat him and hurt him to be honest yeah since i was a kid he abused me and took everything from me I, I couldn't take that he would never own up to telling the truth. I knew I would never get the truth out of him. So it was my one chance just to to be angry and let it out. Was your mom present for that or your sister? Did they witness it? Yeah. This was at my mom's apartment. He would come over from time to time, try to get my mom back. He also told me the reason that they were separated mm-hmm. when she got back, when he got back from prison, because she had her own apartment, her own job. We were kind of trying to move away. And we also thought he'd be in prison much longer Mm -hmm. than nine months. And I know that at that time I had been kind of pegged as someone who was having problems. Maybe, you know, I don't think my family identified that I was having post-traumatic stress or severe childhood trauma. But I kind of at this time, I kind of felt like I was pegged as a problem child, that this was my problem, that I was aggressive that I was, you know, verbally disrespectful and yelling. Mm-hmm. Looking back, my mom and sister, again, they were, they were victims of this right along with me. I think I was just always the one that maybe said something, did something different. I was scared of him, but there were times I wasn't afraid of him. And that opportunity to, to hit him with a heart-shaped box as hard as I could, 
I had been waiting for that hit for 15 years. Did you feel unbeatable <laughs> afterwards? Were you, was there a change? Sorry, I'm projecting here. Did that impact how you felt about it in general afterwards? Right. Yes. Like if I close my eyes, I can see that box because that box had meaning. You know, I, I needed him to know I wasn't afraid of him and that he was no longer going to control and dictate my life. He was not going to manipulate me. You stuck up for yourself the way anyone who has a bully should. Yeah. I never called him father at, after that point. I only referred to him as him or his name. Did he fuck with you after that? So my parents got divorced in 2002. And the reason being was because my mom wanted to wait until I was 18. So they were separated for four years. Got it. Before they finalized their divorce. Because my sister's two years older than me. Mm -hmm. And she had gotten married quite young. To a, you I know, bet. Get got out. Got the hell out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't blame her. Um, so she got out. So when I turned 18, my mom filed paperwork a week later. Okay. And so they divorced. Yeah. And so at that point, I I had a family dog that I loved. Aww. There was very few things that I loved as a child mm -hmm. and very few things that I would consider to be a home-like object. We had a puppy that I was given as a Christmas present year, you know, back in the 90s. She was eight years old and she was living at my dad's house and my parents are just getting ready to finalize and do this divorce. And I went to go check on her one day at my dad's house. And he said, all oh, the neighbor kids are playing with her. And I said, okay, why do the neighbors have her? And he goes, oh, you can go see them. But the neighbors were just, they've been playing with her and walking her. And I knew there was something wrong. And so I went down to the house and um, I knocked on the door. And they said, who are you? And I said, hey, this is my dog. You know, my dad said you've been playing with her. And they said, they said, no, your dad told us exactly what you've been doing with this dog. She's ours. So my dad gave away. The only thing I loved, which was <laughs> my family dog of eight years. Ugh. So at that point, I never saw him again. Yeah. Did he try to get in touch with you? Um, we did get a restraining order against him. We all, once the divorce was finalized, you know, he had threats. He was stalking my mother. I had taken a job at the elitist Christian camp that my father had scammed because they had dormitories there. I wasn't living with my mom at the time either. I had actually gotten kicked out of my house at 18 because I was kind of losing my own shit. Yeah. My mom really couldn't handle me. I'm surprised you didn't get sent to one of those like Utah camps or something for bad kids. Yeah, like Paris Hilton. <laughs> that actually sounds really nice. <laughs> sounds nice. <laughs> so when my parents got divorced, I started drinking heavily. You know, I had a, quite a bit of trauma that I did not know how to deal with. I sure. didn't know how to identify it. I didn't know what it was. So, you know, I do what most kids do at that point. They're angry. They're depressed. Their dog just got given away. And I just don't think my, my mom had been battered and through so much she couldn't handle me. Mm -hmm. So I got kicked out of the house and I moved out. Where'd you go? Well, I'm a nomad. So I packed up everything I had in my Jetta and I started staying at friends' houses I worked at that summer camp, and um, during that time, I was getting ready to start my first day on the job. They had dorms for me, so I thought, this will give me three months of some place to live while I don't have a place to go, and I'll go to school in the fall. Well, I went to go put my name tag on, and um, one of the HR reps pulled me in the office. She was like, I just want to let you know, we know who you are. Well, we know your family, and she goes, and you will not be displaying your last name on your name tag. Jeez. And so... Day one, I was told to take my name off my name tag 
everybody else had their, you know, John and something, Susie, blah, blah, blah. And I only got to have my first name. No last initial, nothing. Everybody else had their full names on their name tag. So that's where I stayed for three months. And then I moved in with my grandparents because I just had no place to go. Moved in with my sister and her new husband. And then I reconciled with my mom about a year later. And then that's when I started college. I started college, got a job, and I tried to act as normal as possible. My mom and sister looked really well collected because they both married good men. They married great guys. They're still, they're still married and they're still great people. Your mom remarried. My mom did remarry. I was going to yeah. say, it's cool that she got out. Like, yeah. you know, she didn't get, she divorced him. She got to do that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Stella got her groove back. My mom found an amazing man um, pretty soon after. I think she went, she, she started dating someone because they had, their marriage had been over for 20 years. Yeah. So she married pretty soon. My, my sister married. And so at that point, I thought, they look really good. They're doing good. They got married. Maybe that's what I should do. Maybe I should try to find, try to find love. Um, but really, for me, just to act normal, I didn't really know how, what that looked like. I didn't. I kind of felt like a, you know, an alien in a human suit. Yeah. I just kind of watched other people to see how they acted. I just didn't really know how to act in a normal setting. Okay, this is a post father era. He's gone. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer afraid. Life is really good, except that I fell apart. Yeah. I, I didn't know how to act. I just kind of, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to do what everybody else is doing. I'm going to watch them. I'm going to watch them move and fall in line. I'm going to copy what everybody else is doing because that's how I'm going to survive. Because I just didn't know how to be myself. I didn't know who I really was at that time. After having, you know, 18 years of being on the run, being lied to, not knowing really what happened to me. Yeah. Um, so I went to college. I went to Christian. I went to a Christian college. Right. Liberty, um, right? Yeah. I went to, I first made a stop at Trinity in the Chicago area. I went to school there. I went to a couple community college. It took me about eight years to finish college. Yeah. It took me quite a long time. But during that time, that's when my mental health really started to kind of fall apart. Mm-hmm. I ended up having a major mental breakdown in 2005 and 2007. How was that received in those institutions? My mom and sister on the exterior seemed to be doing pretty well, but I was the one that continued to fall apart. You know, I was always the one that was a little bit more on the rebellious side. And so, yeah, I mean, I started, I was addicted to benzos. Mm -hmm. I drank heavily. Anything I could really do to, you know, kind of figure out how to function. Is Liberty... um... A dry campus? I went to their online program. I was on campus. Yeah, so it, and it wouldn't have been a dry campus for me anyways sure. at that I time. I mean, let's face it. It's probably not really a dry campus. It's not a dry campus. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the current uh, disgraced, uh, is it Jerry Falwell Jr.? Yeah, it's Jerry Falwell Jr. Yeah. I'm really ashamed. I, I think I actually took off like um liberty off my linkedin because i was so ashamed that i went there it just looks like it just didn't go to college which is fine with me yeah you'd shared that when it came to a major course of study you looked into christian counseling or being a counselor that was probably a way to try and help yourself yeah i really found and i said i did i mean not through the christian counseling aspect right but I wanted to heal myself. You know, I had, I had been through already a bad relationship 
like a typical girl with daddy issues, I looked for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. Um, and so I had some bad relationships and I kind of got penned as an all-around man hater. Mm. Did you date guys that were like basically your father? Well, my first my first long-term relationship my uh, was about a year after my father. And um, he was a cocaine addict, alcoholic. He might have been physically stationary, but he was emotionally nomadic. He was a Sagittarius, just like my father. He was very charming, dark and handsome, and it was very familiar and homelike. I mean, he was he was a good guy other than his own vices, but he also had daddy issues. So, yeah. But that was home to me. I, I knew that kind of person. I knew that kind of personality, somebody that was a little unstable. And I think I was really drawn to those things because the stationary part when you're a nomad is really strange. The quiet and the stillness doesn't sit well. Can you talk a little bit about the Christian counseling? Mm-hmm. It's a lot different than therapy. Oh, yeah. So Christian counseling, you know, it tends to be. So I had major mental health issues. I had panic disorder. I had panic attacks from uh, 2006 or so till about 2012. Mm-hmm. I had them pretty regularly. And in order to kind of help myself with this, I thought, you know, those who can't do teach. So I'm going to study counseling and psychology. And so my, that's what my background is in psychology. But the Christian counseling aspect really blew my mind. It was absolutely insane. I remember reading it like the first course I had to take for my minor talked about it being a spiritual affliction. Right. You know, so for, you know, for example, if, if you're a Christian and you have a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist. If you have a cavity, you go to a dentist. But if you have a mental health disorder, you go to a pastor. Right. And it really is more of a, to put it in layman's terms, pray the anxiety away. Yeah. Where, you know, clinical diagnoses of anxiety is, they don't really exist. It's more that you, it's a spiritual matter that focusing on Jesus, focusing on your faith will kind of help rectify that anxiety. For a while, I was deprived of a lot of counseling because of just learning bad dogma myself and bad Christian values, I did not really treat my own mental health anxiety for a while. I wonder if Christians who believe in this ethos, like sort of like anti-secular therapy, if you will, and neurology, if they even believe in something like schizophrenia, where you would hear voices or have, mm-hmm. you know, hallucinations maybe or even racing thoughts, you would be told um, to pray, mm-hmm. right? Or you'd have an exorcism, exorcism because those voices were demonic. Yep. When I was having mental health problems, yeah. um, somebody came over and cleansed my room of demons. I had just gone to Cambodia on a missions trip <laughs> and it, 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 oh, in my college years. And this was right before I had my first big mental breakdown. And I was told in advance that, like, in Cambodia, there's going to be spiritual warfare. Sure. And I, I grew up Christian. I was like, what does that really mean? You know, is there going to be demons with swords? That's kind of how I pictured it. And they said, there's going to be spiritual warfare. This is a godless nation. Yeah. You know, be prepared. I was like, okay. For some reason, I decided to have my first massive panic attack and mental breakdown in a third world country because it just sounded like a good time to do that. I just fell apart when I was there. I don't know why, but I did. What, how did that take place? I, people say I had a breakdown. What actually happened to you? Oh, I was in the woods in Cambodia. We were in the backwoods area of Phnom Penh. 
we were going to see this village and I passed out. Um, my arms went cold. My face turned white. And from that point on, I actually couldn't get out of bed for about 10 days in a Cambodian hotel. I would actually crawl on my hands and knees to get to the, like the dining room. I can laugh about it now, <laughs> but at the time it, it was pretty horrifying. Yeah, yeah. And the people I was with told me that it was demons. Jesus. I think my childhood trauma right along with my religious trauma is about at the same height. Um, when I got back from Cambodia, they sent someone from my church to come see me. And she panned my room. Once I got back from that horrendous flight of having, you know, 10 day long mental breakdown, she looked around my room and the first thing she saw was a book, Carl Jung. I had started collecting books on how to help myself and what to do. I was feeling pretty fucked up at that time. I thought I should probably look into this thing I have of anxiety. I had lost 20 pounds. I look emaciated. I looked in the mirror and I didn't even know who I was. I looked like a shell of myself. And um, the woman from our church came over. She took that book off the shelf. And then she grabbed a Pier 1 decorative bowl I had on my coffee table. And she started washing my room with the imaginary blood of Christ. And she grabbed my Carl Jung book, my, my anxiety books, anything that was clinical anxiety. Because that doesn't exist in the Christian counseling world. Right. So she took those things and she grabbed my Harry Potter books. Oh my God. Come on, man. That people are still <laughs> well, burning fair. Harry Potter books, yeah. I guess. I guess people are still really. <laughs> but she said that that was a cause of my anxiety. So she started a bonfire behind my parents' garage. I say parents, my mom and stepdad. I refer to them as my parents. And so she burned them all. Wow. Burning books. And told me that I had demons. Yep. She burned books and that only fueled my anxiety further. So when that didn't work and didn't help you and exacerbated this, when did you get medical help and where was it? Pretty much after, I think the flames were still burning in my parents' backyard and Harry Potter was like turning into ash in the air. I called a friend and she had called a real counselor for me. Because I remember calling her crying saying, there's an insane woman burning books and telling me that I'm demon possessed. Ugh. It is amazing how easily you can find people who will say stuff like yes. that. Yeah. Like you just wander around. Everyone has like iPhones. You know, we drive cars. We know how the body works. Gravity. We know science. There's bound to be somebody like on this block. I bet you there's somebody who will say that. It's so crazy. It is to me. so crazy. It is like Greek mythology. I mean, there is no little demon, non-existent flames of hell that are fighting for my soul. But at that time, I was just still deconstructing and the evangelical hooks were still in me pretty deep. Mm -hmm. And I was malleable. I was damaged. I was anxious. I didn't know what to think of it at that point. I just remember feeling horrified. Did you associate religion with your father? Yes. Was there a way that they could exist separately for you? I used to think they could because, in, you know, post-college, um, for most of my 20s, I thought I was a Christian. But I, I didn't like Christian men. They wanted nothing to do with me. I wore my daddy issues and my man-hating like a tattoo on my arm. And I was definitely that red flag girl that you don't go near. Plenty of Christian men that I tried to go out with at times, they pretty much told me. I, I had one guy tell me. He was studying Christian counseling, and he told a friend of mine, well, I'll fix her, and then I'll fuck her. Wow. So cool. Real cool. cool yeah. um, so I rarely 
went out with Christian men and because I thought they were disgusting. I yeah. I really started to associate them with my father. And then, you know, here's Jesus is supposed to be this hippie dude that loves everybody, hangs out with the woman at the well, but not one Christian man wanted to go out with me. Amazing. And lucky for you. <laughs> and lucky. I married an atheist, so. <laughs> yeah, lucky for you. <laughs> you dodged bullets. What's a story of like a turning point for you where you felt a little more healed? I think I'll always be healing. But I was in my mid-20s. I had been going through cognitive behavioral therapy, had been doing inner child work mm -hmm. and, and seeing real counselors. I started distancing myself from people from church. I started identifying at that time as agnostic, even though Christian dogma was much ingrained in my brain. And some things were very hard to let go of. But I had a counselor that taught me how to love myself first before going into a relationship because I didn't really know how to coexist in a relationship at mm -hmm. that time. I had a handful of pretty bad failed ones because I just didn't know how to be with somebody because I didn't really know how to be with myself. Mm -hmm. But once I learned who to accept who I was and not be ashamed of who I was, that's kind of when I felt healed. And also when I stopped hiding. I used to really pretend like I was a normal Christian girl most of my 20s. I always kind of kept up the front, nothing to see here. Everything's good. There's nothing beyond this exterior. I had a pretty big wall up and I didn't really let people know who I was. Even in a long-term relationship, I never told them who my, my dad was or any stories. I kept those things because I knew if I told my story, those people usually disappeared. That's how it was for me as a child. That's the pattern. So I never told people my story. You know, oh, what does your dad do? Oh, works on computers. So much like my dad, I kind of had my own persona mm -hmm. out in public. I kind of acted a certain way, carried myself. I would kind of went, kind of kept going to church, kind of carried on with that kind of persona because it's what I knew. And I needed to act like nothing was wrong, even though behind the scenes I was having mental breakdowns and massive panic attacks, anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. When you finally met a guy who wasn't a manipulative religious jerk, how did you accept that that was true? How did you know how to trust? I think even though I had dated plenty of unsavory dudes, bad guys, and some of it was my own fault because I was falling apart too. You know, I didn't really know how to function in a relationship. I think I kind of have some good feelings on who's good and who's bad. Yeah. Sometimes I think I have that, um, especially growing up. I think I kind of yeah. had some vibes. So when I, you know, when I met my husband, I remember the first time I saw him, I was like, yep, he is a good guy. We're definitely going to be a thing. I knew it as soon as I saw him. And I knew he was a good guy. And I remember when he told me he was an atheist and I still kind of thought I was a Christian. I thought, well, I remember what my dad said. Yep. You have to marry a Christian man. Otherwise, your marriage could be punished. That was things he told me. Or if you have premarital sex, your marriage will end. He always said that the reason his marriage ended with my mom was because they had premarital relations. Oh, my God. Not because he was a shitbag, but it's because, you know, they got jiggy with it before they hit the aisles. <laughs> so where's your dad now? So, you know, I stopped seeing him in 2002. In 2009, when I was still on Facebook, when that was still a thing to do, I had my last name up as my username and a family, somebody had contacted me. They said, Hey, is such and such your father? And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I had things like that happen to me and I still do. Hey, are you related to, so I had this family reach out to me and, um, they said, you know, Hey, he ran off with my sister 
and we haven't seen her in a long time. She has two young children. She's a teacher, and she just stopped going to her job. Wow. And they started asking me stories. Did Is he an investor? Does he have a house in Europe? And I thought, there's just no possible way. And they started emailing me stories and said, what can you tell us about these bad guys? Is he really on the run? Is he really these things? I said, here's my number. Call me. They were a family from Illinois. And yeah, she had two young children and he took them on the run and did this all over again to another family. Oh, my God. The children escaped. But since 2009, this family has not seen their the woman that my father married. It's been 13 years since they've seen her. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. Totally heartbreaking. But you know what? It's so great that you got to help those people, those children avoid your experience. We still stay in contact too. I call them my sort of aunts. I'm like, hey, sort of aunts, how are you? Like, we always kind of stay in touch. Have you heard anything? Because I, I worry about the woman. I have no desire to reconcile with my dad. You know, I don't have to forgive him. I don't have to do any of those things. But I worry about the woman because I know what that life is like. She's 13 years in, and I can only imagine she's a shell of what she used to be. She's lost her children. She's lost her children. Yep. I don't know much about her. Um, Her family seems lovely. We stay in contact. We know we're friends on Instagram. We comment on each other's photos because I have this connection with them to something very unique. And we just keep in touch. Have you heard anything? And And I haven't. What about God? How do you feel about God now? Well... I quote my my favorite biblical historian is from Moody Bible Institute, but he's an atheist. His name's Dr. Bart Ehrman. And I've been deconstructing my faith probably since I was eight because things just never quite added up. I'm an atheist because I don't believe it. I'm an agnostic because I'm not sure. And I'm a Christian because it's what's ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. So I still find values in non-harmful, inclusive Christian traditions. Like be good to each other and... Don't lie. (laughs) Yeah. Don't steal money. I do go to church from time to time. I enjoy the energy sometimes of a a service. So I I attend a progressive, inclusive church from time to time. It's familiar to me. It's home. But I definitely think that quote sums up kind of where I am. And it took me so long to shake off my faith and to claim that I wasn't a Christian. Even when I was agnostic, I didn't tell my family for about 10 years because it's just something that they still hold on to. And it's something that I was happy to let go to because if as a Christian, if I had to spend eternity with the people who judged me, the people who did demon cleansing, the people who did interventions on my behalf, if I had to spend all eternity with them listening to Michael W. Smith in the clouds, I was going to tell them they can roll on to the pearly gates without me because good day. Right. It doesn't sound that great in heaven. It sounds like a, real a like Christopher Hitchens calls it a celestial North Korea, where there's like an unending totalitarian praise yeah. of the dear leader. Never ending worship. Always. I used to lay in bed thinking about that, the eternity. It just sounded really exhausting. And I always had this vision of like a terrible 1990s, like Carmen CD, for those who know yeah. who that is, or like Michael <laughs> W. Smith. And that's the only CD they had for all eternity. And your hands had to be raised the entire time. It always sounded exhausting. And the fact that I had to be alongside all those people I just listed, I still want my wizarding books back. (laughs) Did you get another set? I did buy another set. But when I look, I can actually see it right now from my office. And I'm really bitter because it cost me like $90 to replace that. It was hardcover. Those aren't cheap. Those first editions. That's annoying. Those were precious, precious wizarding books. I was going to ask, 
what you inherited from your dad. I hear it in those survival skills that, you know, we have being able to read people and gut instinct, Mm -hmm. but also act as if and take on certain, Mm -hmm. you know, characters yourself as a way to move through Mm -hmm. the world. And I was just curious if there's anything that you're grateful for in terms of Because charm is actually a survival technique. Yeah, you're charming, yeah. I mean, it's true. People will laugh at that, but charm is how people survive. Sure. And I was in sales for a long time, and I used to have people say, well, you're very charming. And I think had my father, again, I have a hard time looking back and seeing any redeemable quality of him because I've got, obviously, I have this terrible experience with him. I think he's, Sociopath, it sounds like. yeah. We refer to him in my family as Voldemort just because he's just he who shall not be named. He's evil. He's subhuman. And he's like a puddle of something somewhere out in the cosmos. But yeah, I would say one, I don't know if it's a trauma response because trauma, you learn to be charming, adapt and to be empathetic. But those were also strangely my dad's like signature traits, too. He was comical. He was funny. He was charming and he wasn't empathetic, but He kind of shared some of those personality traits that also can be a result of childhood trauma. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm just damaged and I hold those traits because of damage or possibly I, you know, I have some of those things from him. He loved Monty Python (laughs) and I love Monty Python. So I I get my love of Monty Python and the Holy Grail from him and he loved the Rolling Stones. That is fascinating. I just want to ask one more thing to close out and I usually don't frame things this way, but something really struck me about your story. And it's just simply that you fought back and rejected the essential, you know, lesson that we all learn growing up in the church. Never disrespect your father. Blood is Mm -hmm. thicker than water. No matter Mm -hmm. what, even if it's Mm -hmm. bad, don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. What would you say to somebody, a kid who's going through this kind of childhood where they are trapped under the thumb of an abuser, what would you say to that kid? There's two different things. There's a relationship and there's biology. To someone who is going through this, I would let them know that is just, they're just a biological person. And I think a lot of Christian families, like you said, fall under, you have to respect them. You know, that is your father. I've heard that so many times. That's your father. And you have to forgive. You must forgive. Mm. You have to forgive him. And I would tell them, you can be mad at them. You can retaliate. You can fight back. You don't have to respect them. Whoever manipulated the verse in the Bible that says, respect your mother and father, there needs to be a big footnote. If they're respectable, and then there needs to be like 20,000 pages of what it means to be a respectable person. Because we don't define that in the Bible. We just say, well, disrespect them. If they're respectable, Mm -hmm. my stepdad, I refer to him as my father because I have a relationship with him. It doesn't matter that we are not biologically linked. We're best friends. We're good friends. And that's what matters. This podcast was created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Felt. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. 
subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And if you can, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It's just a little thing you can do, and it makes such a difference for us to get the word out about our show. Thanks for listening. 